I hope y'all are ready for today's passage. I surely am. (laughs) I think this passage is going to shock the daylights out of you. Um, Today's passage is what's called a dark comedy. We would call it that. What's a dark comedy? The first thing that comes to my mind is what? That great movie, Bernie. Anybody see Bernie? Okay, some of you. Now, this is one of these, now it's kind of becoming a cult classic. It didn't win all the awards. It didn't get all the hype. But I think it stayed at the Hollywood Jewel for months longer than any other major blockbuster does because it was one of those word-of-mouth movies. And it's a true story about a murder in a small town in East Texas called Carthage, which is notorious for those of us that live in Lorena. Um, Jack Black plays the main character, Bernie, and he's this winsome, I mean, relational dynamo, the kind of guy that you'd just be like, man, can I talk to you? I mean, he is, he is winsome, he is warm, he is loving, he's caring, he's relationally firing on all cylinders, and he's a murderer. In the beginning of the movie, Jack Black, playing Bernie, um, is driving his car, and this is movie ticket gold. I mean, if you don't, if, just watch these two minutes and then turn the movie off if you don't want to see the rest of it. But this, what I'm about to tell you is movie ticket gold. He starts singing, Love Lifted Me, while he's driving. And uh, my wife and I, I think we laugh so hard it is, it's just the best. Well, anyhow, why a dark comedy? Why am I even going in that direction? Our passage today is a dark comedy. And it's a dark comedy because dark comedies do something. They get a message across in a very, you don't know whether you should laugh at it, right? Or you should be disgusted by it. You should be both. And a dark comedy that we're going to look at here is designed to make you feel down deep in your bones something that the text wants to communicate. And you know what that is? God is not afraid of your mess. This passage is meant to make you laugh again. You who are messy and dirty and nasty. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, the reading will be coming from Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. 
And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. It did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with the ox goad, and he also saved Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that even now by your spirit you would open our eyes, work in our hearts. Oh God, shine on the page. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, today's passage is really good for us. You know why? Because it's an unrefined text. It's an impolite text. Uh, it doesn't have manners. It's dirty, it's nasty, it's controversial, it's, well, it's messy. That's what it is. It's absolutely messy. Uh, and it's hard to know what to do with a passage like this, isn't it? Why is a passage like this in the Bible? I mean, I had to debate whether I was actually going to give you the literal meaning of so many words in this text. Because you'd, run, you'd, you'd be plugging your kid's ears. You'd be like, how dare him say that in, the, in church? And I'd be like, how dare God have that in the Bible? Right? Because deep down, we think Christianity should be refined and polite and well-mannered. We should think it should be clinical and sterile and clean, uh, you know, dressed in suits or polos and dresses. But Christianity, we, we think it should be well, it should be nice, right? Because deep down, we believe God is a white glove God. Right? And he can't touch this kind of stuff. We don't think he gets dirty. In fact, Philip Elliott in his commentary on Judges apologizes for this passage being in the Bible. This is what he says. But even the most elementary, by even the most elementary standard of ethics, Ehud's deception and murder of Eglon stands condemned. Passages like this, when encountered by the untutored reader of the scriptures, causes consternation and questioning. End quote. I'm glad he's so tutored in understanding what it means. Well, if Christianity, if the God of Christianity is a white-gloved God, then this guy has a point. If the Bible is a book of virtues, he's got a real good point. But the question is, is it a book of virtues? And is God a white-gloved God? I want you to look at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you catch that word? Again. Now, we've been mapping out what exactly they did. If you want to know exactly what they did, go look at last week's sermon, and you'll know exactly what they did. But they did it again. That's the key here. Again. And I wonder, what is our again? 
What is your again? Yelling at the kids again? Breaking that promise to change again? Going to the bad website again? Lying again? Withholding love from that person, that so-and-so again? What's your again? Don't miss how God responds to Israel's again. Verse 12, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Did you get that? The Lord strengthened who? Eglon. Now that'll wake you up. The king of Moab against Israel? Because they had done what was evil on the side of the Lord. Now for some of you, you're like, oh, I knew it. (laughs) I knew it. I knew God hated me when I sinned, and I know he hates me when I sin. That's why I hate myself. And for those of you that think that, you know, hate's a real strong word, you just kind of substitute word like disappointment. God's just so disappointed in me when I sin. This is why we cover up our sin to God and why we cover up our sin to others and we cover up our sin to ourselves. This is why we don't confess it and we don't face our sin because God hates our sin. It's too traumatic. God hates your sin and he hates you. When you sin, it's just, it's traumatizing, so you better cover it up. Certainly don't face it. That's just, you fall to pieces if you do that. And then if you tell somebody else, what are they going to think? This is why we can't shake that, that feeling dirty feeling. We can't shake shame because dirty defines you. No, no, it doesn't define you. Dirty is you. Because God hates your sin. God hates you because you sin. Look at verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. That's 18 years. So now we're, we're doubled what the first cycle was under Othniel, plus two years. Now, Eglon is called a king four times in this passage, and that means that Eglon is a big deal in the ancient Near East, and evidently he's literally a big deal because Eglon means little calf. And if you look at verse 17, now Eglon was a very fat man, so this is dark comedy, right? I mean, the fat image is intentional. Eglon is getting fat off of Israel. Do you see that? He is feeding on Israel. He's sucking the life sustenance out of Israel. And he just gets fat off of Israel. And do you see specifically what he's getting fat off? Look at the word. Israel's service. This is one of those, this, this passage is loaded with what's called a double entendre, which is a, it's a word that has two meanings and you just don't know which one to use. And that's the point, because it could mean either of them. Service. The tail side of service is worship. So Israel is serving Eglon and Israel is worshiping Eglon. And through Israel's worship and through Israel's service, Eglon is getting fat. Now, don't miss the dark comedy here. (laughs) Eglon is getting fat off of Israel while at the same time he's being fattened for slaughter. It's like Eglon is a temple sacrifice, a fat calf getting ready to be slaughtered. Now, we know that, and Israel knows that. But the Moabites and Eglon doesn't know that. Double meaning. 
that's going through this passage, depending on which perspective you're looking at. Now, notice where Eglon's residence is. Do you see that? Verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Who are the Ammonites and who are the Moabites? You know who they are? They're relatives of Israel. They're descendants of Lot. So Abraham's nephew, his children, his descendants, the relatives, these are the Ammonites. So they go way back. And then you look at the, uh, both of them, both of these, the Moabites and the Ammonites, when Joshua came in at the first part of the conquest and drove out 90% of the inhabitants in the land, remember we're dealing with the 10%. The children now just had 10% to deal with. Their parents dealt with the 100%. They dealt with 90%, drove them out. These folks were driven out and now they went back in. You got the Amalekites. You remember the Amalekites? Those of you who know your Bible stories, Moses had to deal with the Amalekites when they were leaving the Exodus and coming to the land. The Amalekites were the ones that were using Baal and calling down curses on Israel. They hated Israel. So we got old enemies here with old scores to settle. They don't like each other. And that's why it says, and they went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the what? The city of Palms. What's that? Jericho. The very first city conquered in the promised land in that miraculous, unbelievable way. Remember? Walking around seven times, the trumpets, the walls, the tumbling down. Miracle. And now, the very first city of the conquest is retaken. It's a reverse conquest. If the promised land is a new place that God is creating for himself with his people, a new creation, the promised land is now being decreated again. Instead of the nations being driven out, the nations are flooding back in. So there's the picture we're supposed to be getting with Eglon sitting at Jericho. He is at the heart of the decreation reality is taking place. Those of you who need more of an image, this is all over the Bible. If you go to, um, well, the flood, remember the flood? What was the flood doing? It was taking back creation, decreation. The great chaotic waters at the very beginning, God hovered over and formed creation. Now at the flood in Genesis, those waters are decreating the world, coming back. That's what's happening here. All right, so Israel's service by verse 14 is at its 18-year mark or its worship of Eglon. Here's the point. Way back in verse 12, and then if we go to the very first cycle, we get the fact that what's happening with Israel, the reason why they're doing evil is they forget God and they go after the Baals. In other words, they're doing this. The moment that they said, my happiness and my security, my desire for love, uh, my need for importance is not going to be found in God, but it's going to be found in many gods over here. The moment that happened was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's what we see in verse 12. Now here's what I want us to think about. Do you think the Israelites ever dreamed that their pursuit or their need, their deepest longings for love and for, for deliverance and for happiness and security would end with Eglon? Do you think they ever thought that pursuing their deepest longing and need for intimacy and love, instead of going to God with it, but going to a, a Moabite priestess? Do you think that it would end with Eglon? I guarantee you they don't, because I know we don't. That's how sin dupes us. 
That's how our idols dupe us. They come along and they say, hey man, this is where you're going to find true love. I'm going to give you real security. You want to be important, you want to be significant, go find it in achievement and performance. You really want to have acceptance and approval, get it from people. And it turns into an eglon, a fatty king sucking the life out of us. Where is sin duping you? Lying to you, deceiving you, pulling an eglon over you. It's important for us to do this. I know it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. But I've had a whole week to live with this text, so I'm real comfortable right now while you're uncomfortable. It's just one of the benefits of being me right now. (laughs) So where is sin getting fat off you? Because right At this point, Israel is realizing that Eglon is getting fat off of them and it's painful and they're disappointed. And when they finally get to that place, what do they do? Verse 15, they cry out to the Lord. When you get to that place, that your sin or your mini God is no longer Eden, but an Eglon, that's a very good place to be in. When it's Eden... Uh, I, don't, I, I can't even talk to you, and you can't even talk to me when I'm in those times. No, no, this is Eden. No, no, brother, it's really not Eden. No, it's Eden. But then it turns to Eglon, and now you're ready. Now you want deliverance. Now. Now you cry out to God, right? All right. What does God do with messed up people when they cry out to him? What does he do with them? So we're messed up and it's not pretty and there we're, we're the again kind of people. Again, we do evil on the side of the Lord and God, how do you see God looking at you at those times? How does he respond to messed up people when they cry out to him? I mean, does he wait and say, hey man, will you please get your act together? Does he hold his nose at your stink? Does he say like, you know what, if, if you clean up just a little bit, my white gloves can kind of get in there and help you a little bit. Does God like hold his nose or does he tiptoe around your sin and try to do damage control of it? How does God respond to messed up people when they cry out to him? Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. (laughs) Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. What does God do? He sends a left-handed deliverer. And Israel would be like, oh, yay, right? Because what's a left-handed deliverer? He's literally, you know what it literally means? A man impotent, disabled in his right hand. In other words, Ehud is crippled in his right hand. That's why he's left-handed. And we know this because in that day, just like in our day, right-handed people usually are, it's kind of the dominant hand. I think I have a left-handed son. I have a nephew who's left-handed. I have nothing against left-handed people. 
But you know and I know that it's mostly a left-handed society. It was that way back then. In fact, in the ancient Near East, you swore oaths by your right hand. The Bible is positively positive about right hands. God swears by it. He delivers by it. He overpowers by it. He causes his chosen one to sit by it. And in Psalm 16, in his right hand, he holds supra pleasures, delicacies. The right hand's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Um, The sword hand for a warrior in the ancient Near East was right. In this culture, a left-handed person or a deformed person with a right hand would never be considered for a leadership post. A person of influence, no way. The right hand symbolizes power. The right hand symbolizes ability. You know what the right hand symbolizes? Deliverance. And God chooses a left-handed deliverer. Othniel. The first savior judge, remember what we saw about him? What was he? He was the ideal deliverer. The only man other than Joshua that doesn't have a list of imperfections and flaws by his name and judges. Every other person does. Case in point, Ehud. Who's Ehud? The anti-deliverer. The anti-Othniel. Not the standard, not the ideal. The mishappened one, the flawed one, the defective one, the disabled one. The crippled one, the weak one. Ehud doesn't just symbolize weakness. Ehud is weakness. He's the unexpected deliverer. Let's move. Let's move into the story, shall we? It gets really, really good. The action really starts getting interesting. The left-handed deliverer, what does he do? He makes, he constructs a dagger. It's 18 inches long, so it goes from your knuckles and your fingers down to your elbow. Perfect size, hiding size, right? He hones it to a razor's edge. He sharpens it till it's a razor edge on both sides. He straps it to his right thigh because he's left-handed. He's going he's to grab it with his right. Now, he's going he's to strap it on the inside of his thigh because all the right-handed warriors carried their swords on the outside left thigh to grab this way. Well, he would grab it this way, okay? So what happens is, is Eglon, or Ehud does his duty, and he delivers the tribute to Eglon. And now we're, we're, we're like, oh, what's going to happen? Well, it's uneventful. Do you see that? The first time he gets in front of Eglon, nothing happens. You're like, okay, I thought he was going to do something. And he starts to head home. But then in verse 19, he stops. And he turns to his Israeli teammates and he says, y'all go home. And then he turns around and he goes back to Eglon all alone. Alone man to deliver Israel. Verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. I mean, this is just brilliant. He goes to the Baal worship center and he checks in. And while he's there, he pretends to receive an oracle from God for the king. Double meaning, because he does have a message from God. Right? But old Eglon, he's like, it's a message for me. That's why he stands up, you know. Ehud, when he finally shows up, Eglon stands up. Silence to hear the message from God for him. 
Now I want you to notice too that here we are at the highest potency of the many gods of the Baal's power and they're powerless to stop Ehud. He's deceiving. He's on, he's got his ecstatic oracle. He's got his message from God and the gods in the gods hometown can't stop him. Ehud steps into the king's palace now for the second time. He's now standing before Eglon. In the moment he stands before Eglon, the camera just goes, and someone hits slow motion. It's almost as if all the creatures in heaven and all the creation of earth just stops. Everyone's attention focuses on Eglon and Ehud. And it slows down and watch what happens. I mean, it's so intentional. The details are incredible. They see the left hand. The dagger pulled from the right thigh, the thrust, Eglon's belly, the handle after the blade, swallowed by fat. A dead king, dung everywhere, the potty smell, embarrassed servants, and then Eglon passes by the idols again, unscathed, untouched. Barry Webb in his commentary of Judges says, Ehud's mastery of Eglon is total. All right, what's the big idea of this stunning story? I mean, what is it? Why is this story in the Bible? Why would God have this here? Why would he have all the potty language? I read one commentary and it was like, ooh, I can never say that. Never. I like to, but I'm not going to say that. So this is a really nasty passage. It could be worse. Here's the big idea. God is not afraid of your mess. He mastered it. God is not afraid of your mess. He mastered it. He's not afraid of you again. He's not afraid of you again doing evil in the sight of the Lord. God is not a white glove God. God does not work around your sin. He doesn't see your sin and see you in your sin and and work around it. He goes right in it. And he goes right through it. And he goes right into the nastiness of it. And he sends a left-handed deliverer into the heart of it to master it. So I need to clear something up. God strengthened Eglon. Do you remember that? That was kind of disturbing. We thought, oh yeah, God does hate me when I sin. Uh, He didn't do that because he hated Israel. And he didn't do it because he was disappointed with Israel. He did it because he loves Israel. And he wanted to deliver them from themselves and deliver them from their abuser. And they had to get to the point that their sin was no longer Eden, but Eglon. God steps into your mess to love you, to deliver you, to heal you by sending a left-handed deliverer who masters your sin. Your sin is powerless to stop him. And here's the trick, though. What is seen as weakness, what's weakness? Weakness is seen to be weakness, God could show up in one of two ways. He could show up in his complete celestial glory 
I am God. Or he can become a man. Well, that's weak. He can come from a palace. Or he can be born in a manger, a stable, poverty. Well, that's weak. He could live a life of position and power and prestige because he's God. Or humility and poverty and suffering. Well, that's weak. He can come down, he can obliterate every one of his enemies. All he has to do is say the word. In fact, he told Pontius Pilate that. He said, listen, dude, all I have to do is whistle. But instead he dies on the cross for his enemies. Oh, that's, that's weak. And the weakness of Jesus is the power of God. power that masters all Eglons. The power of God that actually delivers messed up people like us. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. Look at verse 28. What are you supposed to do to this? How do you respond to this big idea? How do you respond to a God that's not afraid of your weakness? He's not afraid of your mess. How? Verse 28. And he, Ehud, said to them, follow after me. This is beautiful. Israel didn't even know he was the deliverer. You imagine when he did that parting? They don't even know what's going on. He says, hey, guys, y'all head home. I'm just going to pray to the bales here a little longer. Notice they didn't say, hey, you shouldn't do that. They're like, yeah, dude, go ahead. Because that's what we do now, right? And then all of a sudden, Eglon's defeated, and he blasts the trumpet. Now Israel gets out of their slumber Now they start shaking off the cramps from hiding in caves. And now they get a little courage because they're already delivered. Eglon's dead. The Moabites are fleeing. They're not rallying to fight. They're fleeing for their lives. And all the Israel does is they go down to the basin and it's, it's, it's a turkey shoot. So watch what happens. Here's what we do. You follow God's left-handed Savior. Follow him. The deliverance is all. He did it. You can smile now. It's over. And how do you follow God's left-handed Savior? How do you do that? What does following look like? All right, so we're going to follow him. Now, what does following look like? You know what it looks like? You've got to be left-handed too. There are no right-handed followers of Jesus. There are no strong, valiant warriors of Jesus. There are only left-handers, spiritual cripples, spiritually disabled, spiritually needy. You follow by being in need. You and I follow by being weak. Because watch this. I mean, it's, and they, we need his strength. We need his cross. We need his deliverance from sin. You do not have the strength or the power to deal with guilt. You can't. You can't deal with your sin on your own. You can't wrestle with its power. You can't wrestle with its motivation. You can't wrestle with its shame. You're no match for it. 
you must have someone who can. A left-handed deliverance is a deliverance by grace, not by my work, my achievement, my performance, my worthiness. So you got to be left-handed if you want grace. I can't deliver myself. I can't deal with my struggles and my sin on my own. I can't handle shame. I can't eat my own death. I don't have the righteousness. I don't have the ability to love people. Be left-handed because Jesus is your victory. Look at verse 27. When Ehud arrived, he sounded the trumpet, then the people of Israel went with him. He was their leader. (laughs) The left-handed guy is the leader. (laughs) Then, if you're left-handed, you realize you can be left-handed because Jesus is your victory. Now you hear the trumpet. Now you get up and you live again. Now you can smile. It's over. It's done. Be left-handed because Jesus is your happy ending, and that's the whole point of this whole thing. It's a dark comedy, but it's a comedy that's meant to make an Israelite laugh again. Though they are messy, and though it is a messed-up thing they're in, God is not afraid of their mess. He sends a left-handed deliverer right into the middle of it to save them so they can laugh again. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit and we thank you that you ride on the wings of your word into our hearts because your word's living and it's active. So we thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you that, again, we are reminded not just intellectually, but we are convinced by you 